Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Okay, welcome everybody. You can see my bio there. Um, and one of the things I try and do is teach Tanakh Bible and try and bring it into a sort of modern day context. Um, today we're going to talk about power and corruption. Okay, power and corruption. Um, I'm not going to try and say anything about American politics, okay? <laughs> I know that I, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the high tensions in the room. I'm a little concerned that I am a British guy who lives in Israel and, you know, tries to follow, but, you know, I'll stay out of it, okay? You've got you to know this, uh, this, <laughs> this class was prepared way before I knew uh, who, who, was the, uh, who was the winner of the election. So if you think there's anything's relevant, that's great. But if you think I'm intending to make a point about one political candidate or another, I am not, okay? Uh, I might be trying to make some, uh, a point about uh, things that happen in Israeli politics, but the truth is, whenever we see corruption in politics, I think we all probably consider it a pretty rotten thing because we'd like to try... We have this funny relationship with politicians, right? We all know that frequently politicians aren't exactly 100% uh, straight with everything that they do. On the other hand, we let them run our countries. <laughs> and we always get like, there's this sort of shock. Oh my goodness, a scandal. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've been around the block a few times and uh, it's surprising that we're always surprised. Having said that, it's written in the good book, right? What we're going to do today is study one of the most famous books of corruption in the, in the Tanakh, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. And we're going to try and um, um, get involved under the skin of the story in some of the different nuances. And I, what I really want to do is I want to study it together with you. So in order to start off, I'm going to hand out these source sheets. Um, there's quite a lot of text on it, but don't be intimidated. Everything is translated. Um, everything here is translated. And, and I want to introduce you into a type of study that we do all the time in the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. And that is what we call a Chavruta study. You do, do you ever done the Chavruta study method? Okay, so I'll tell you. Chavruta is lovely. It's the way, if you go to a traditional yeshiva, I don't know if any of you had an opportunity to spend some time in yeshiva. My generation have been very fortunate, right? That we have had the luxury and the financial support to be able to, uh, to go to study in yeshiva. And the way they study, even in the, from the right-wing yeshivas, from the ultra-Orthodox yeshivas to whatever it might be, is um, in Chavruta. You have a study partner, a study pair. Chavruta really means a study partner, but it also means a friend, okay? And uh, the idea is that through learning, you actually develop friendships. Some of my best friends, even till this day, are the friends I made in yeshiva, or my chabrutas, the people I learned with. Because, of course, you come in, you study, and you study quite diligently, but 
Obviously, you have conversations on the side. In fact, when I, my son has recently been in yeshiva studying, I've got a son who's 20 years old, and um, he always says to me, uh, Abba, I always say, let's start learning. We sit down with a page of Talmud. And he says, Abba, first we've got to talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> he says, first we have to talk. How are you? How is your week? And all of that. You know, you can't start learning till you, well, we're not going to have time to do the friendship thing. That was what the food was for. Um, uh, but, um, but what we are going to do is we're going to start learning. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a chance if you see there is a story here, it is on the first page and it stretches all the way till the middle of the second page, on page one and page two. And uh, what I would like to do is uh, give you a chance to see this unfiltered, un without any me saying anything. So what I'm going to suggest is if everybody goes into pairs of two or, or a group of three and uh, reads the story through. Now here's what I think you should probably do. Read a few lines. Um, and then after you've read, let's say, three or four verses, stop for a second and say to the other person, what do we just read? Okay? Now you'll find, what do we just read? First of all, it's a good way of processing. And second of all, you'll suddenly find that they'll have read it differently than you. Right? They'll have thought about it and maybe say, you know, think about the major character in each scene or different characters and ask, you know, what's, what's bothering them? What's inspiring them? Oh gosh, this character is really... Amazing. This character is really unlikable, right? Oh my, I can't believe what he did, um, or she did in this case. And, um, and we'll, we'll, I'm going to give you about, you know what I'd say? Ten minutes to read through the story, because uh, I want you to read it and discuss it. And then we're going to come together as a big, a big chabruta, as a big uh, study group, and we're gonna, going, to, um, going to discuss it bit by bit, and hopefully that way analyze it. And I'm obviously going to add some insights on my own. Um, which I hope will, you know, bring this, bring this story into light, and that's what we're going to do. Is that okay? That's good? Fantastic. So, let's get learning. You don't need to make it that the, the Jewish Bet Midrash is a Jewish Bet Midrash. That means it's nothing like a library, okay? Okay? There's noise in the room, and it's uh, messy. I once heard somebody say that the more orthodox a synagogue, the more it is a balagan. It's a... Uh, <laughs> And uh, the less order there is. So in the, in the study hall, we also like there to be less order, right? Don't worry about talking aloud because other people will be talking aloud and you'll be able to, um, and don't worry about the, but I, as I say, read a few lines, then say to your study partner, um, what have we read? You know, what do we think of the different characters? So is every, can everybody turn to the person next to them and team up? And then we'll, we'll start. Okay. You've read the story? Yes. Okay, great, beautiful. Okay, um, let's have some, uh, it's just quite a uh, powerful story. Um, uh, and I just wanted to hear some first impressions. People have all been discussing it with their study partners. So I wanted to hear some first impressions. What do people, what do people think? What do people, uh, yes sir, what, what's your name? Michael. Michael. question why Jezebel is not the focus of any punishment or recognition for what she had done in Right. Okay. What did she did do it in her husband's name? By the way, he does say. If you look at verse twenty-three, and God spoke of Jezebel, the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the moat of Jezreel. Right. And oh yeah. Oh, by the way, that eventually does happen. It's like quite a. It's it's quite a crazy scene. I have to say. Maybe I'll talk about it in a little bit. But uh, she actually does uh, get uh, killed. They actually throw her out of the window of the palace. 
she dies, and then before they have the chance to kill her, to, to bury her, uh, the dogs have already eaten her body by the time she's... Uh, so she actually does get quite an ugly uh, end, Jezebel. <laughs> You're saying good. <laughs> you guys are good, okay. Okay, Any, anything else? Oh, right, so that's the huge question, yes, right? Exactly. Okay, does he really know? Okay, I want to come back. I'm yeah. Sorry. The minute they took Neva, Neva, yeah. Um, yeah. he had to have known. The minute right. they took him from the, the fast, mm -hmm. I mean, even when they, they did the fast, the right. they ha he had to have known what was going to happen. Well, he's, maybe he's... He was eating and drinking and being married. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Rabbi, if, if somebody does something in your name, are you still not responsible? Mm -hmm. Does he have a right to say he's ignorant? My wife took care of it. She told me just to eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and be merry. I just assume. Does he have a right, Ahab, to have not educated himself in what she actually did? Okay, so I think you guys have, like, actually nailed it. <laughs> this is, like, the... Uh, one of the central features of this story, right? If you look on... Um, the bottom of page uh, three, I think this is actually one of the critical pieces of this story, uh, because what you see there, I just I tried to organize the structure of the story, right? And if you if you imagine putting this into a Shakespeare play, by the way, many people have, uh, when they read this and they suddenly start saying to me, "She's Lady Macbeth," <laughs> right? Um, you know, they they actually see this as a story which is very similar to. Um, what they know from other literatures where you see. Um, but if you look here, what do you see? In scene one, it's, there's a symmetry to the story. Scene one is in the vineyard. And it's Ahab is talking to, if, I'll use the, the Hebrew, it's more comfortable for me, Nabot, okay? Use the Hebrew, Nabot. Um, then scene two, back at the palace, right? Ahab comes in in a miserable mood, right? He's really grumpy, right? It says here in the text that... Uh, He's sullen and furious, right? <laughs> and he's uh, lying. He's, he's like a child, right? Yeah. He goes to bed, and he's not coming out of his room, right? <laughs> and he's, yes, he's sulking, right? He's, uh, she comes in, and she says, hey, honey, you're not coming down for dinner? And he's like, you know, I can't get this vineyard. He's and pounding. <laughs> he's what? He's pounding. Maybe, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and then, what does she say to him? Uh, she says in verse 7, uh, by the way, I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but Jezebel's wife said to him, you now govern the kingdom of Israel. Okay? Now when she said govern the kingdom of Israel, right? what was she telling him to do? He's in charge of the he Right. Now by the way, I've got to say something about this. Now, uh, Ahab, Achav, is an Israelite king. He's a Jewish man. He comes from a line of Israelite kings. Um, Jezebel, anybody know where she comes from? She's, she, is not, she is not a Jewish woman, okay? Um, she might have gone through a quickie conversion, I don't know, right? But her father and mother, she is a princess of the Phoenician of Lebanon, okay? She comes from pagan roots. She comes from, and I'd say more important than that, she comes from a very different political culture. Yeah? An incredibly different political culture. Um, in her political culture, what does she say to him? You're the king. You can do whatever you want. You want the vineyard, go take it, right? And then, you know, this is how I read it in verse 7. She says, rise, govern Israel, right? And what does Ahab do? 
doesn't do anything. She says, okay, you shmerel, right? You know? She says to him, you know, I'll get it for you, right? Now, the amazing thing about this story is her and Ahab do not exchange another word until verse, verse 15, exactly. When Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Israelite, he re- which he refused to give you money for Naboth, is not alive, but dead. Right? It was the last minute Ahab was sulking in his bed. By the way, she uses the same phrase, Arise. Maybe he's still in bed. Right? <laughs> and, um, and she says, you know, now you can get out of bed because he happens to be dead. What, is, what should Ahab say? That's very strange. He, he looked perfectly healthy yesterday, right? I, I don't understand, you know, what happened, yeah? Doesn't say a word, right? But <laughs> he knew his wife, right? And that's why it's very interesting because, again, I go back to this bottom of page three. First scene, Ahab and Navot. Second scene, Ahab and Jezebel. The third scene, which is the murder scene. Jezebel, the elders, the witnesses with Navot. And then back with Ahab and Jezebel. And then, actually, very interesting, Ahab and Eliyahu in the vineyard, right? Where Eliyahu is obviously Navot's surrogate. He's his, you know, alter ego. Very interesting. Ahab is in every scene except which one? The murder scene. Right? You know, maybe uh, some of you... Uh, have better. Me- I, I wasn't around for all of this, but some of you remember Watergate, right? You know, <laughs> you know when there are no, there are no, uh, there are no fingerprints, there are no leads, right? We need some sort of, uh, you know, somebody to come and stand in the, in the garage and give you a few uh, clues here, right? That's uh, that's Eliyahu's getting the message in the garage, right? He's the one who's. But um, it, it, that's why I call this the perfect murder, right? There, there are no. There are no traces back to Ahab. If you put him on a lie detector test, right, and you say to him, tell me, do you know anything, would he pass? Yeah. Yeah. He really doesn't know anything. He really knows nothing. Yeah, he might have a suspicion, but you know, he really doesn't know anything. If you ask him back, was there a trial? No clue. Did you send any letters? No clue. Somebody else sent them, right? He never saw the letters, right? She stamped them all. She sent them out. She pronounced the death sentence. He genuinely doesn't know anything. So is he guilty by negligence of leaving his stamp around that she could get it? (laughs) Okay. By the way, tell me a story where somebody leaves their stamp around and and it has big implications. A biblical story. You all know it. Uh, With the the Purim story, remember? He gives his ring, takes it off and gives it to Haman. And now Haman sends out all the letters. And then when Esther turns around and says, there's somebody who wants to kill my people. He's like, who would want to do a thing like that? Again, he also doesn't know anything, right? There's a Haman there who's using his ring, who's sending out all sorts of things on his, you know, personal stationery, right? Who's giving all the orders with the presidential seal, right? Even though the president knows nothing, right? Now, I think one of the most powerful things about this story, right? I'm going to go back to the beginning of the story in a minute because I want to start analyzing, but one of the most powerful and amazing things about this story is it says, if you, if the buck stops with you, if you are the king, even if you know nothing, you are culpable. You can't feign ignorance when you actually do have a good idea 
that things are going around, that your subordinates, that the people around you, or even people who aren't, are doing things in your name, don't pretend, right? Don't, don't uh, I don't know, don't have a secret ops operation and say, I don't know anything. If you are the top of the totem pole, right? You, you I would say, if I'm gonna say it in the strongest sense, you bear all the responsibility, right? You bear, even, even though, AIP would pass the lie detector test. You bear all the responsibility. Yes. In a trial today, isn't that also in our law? Ignorance is no defense. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not a legal expert. Do we have any lawyers in the room? Even work its way into our legal system. Right. I, I really. I mean, again, I. I <laughs> well, I've got to say that the Hebrew Bible, like, to my mind, is a is a towering document. I, you know, we don't know too much about the ancient world, but. I think it's a towering document of these sorts of values and this sort of moral conscience. Right? And I'll give you an example. I want to start really actually from the beginning of the story to uh, read a few lines. We're going to read slowly. We call it a, in the business a, a, a close reading. Uh, but I want to pay attention literally to sort of like feel out the text from a literary perspective. And I think we're going to find some interesting surprises or some interesting uh, features. And I want to just, uh, let's start from the beginning of the story, look at a few things. Um, and it came to pass after these things. I'm not going to deal with the connection with the previous story for now. It's a bit beyond what we're able to do, right? And it says um, that Nabot, sorry, that Nabot the Jezreelite had a vineyard. And Hebrew actually says there was a vineyard to Nabot the Jezreelite, uh, which was in Jezreel by the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. Now we call this an exposition in the literary world because we're exposing the characters. But in this very simple verse, which almost says nothing, but I think this verse says a lot. What does it tell us about the characters? What, how does it set up the story? Nabot. Uh, what? Is just a, you know, a, a person, a layman. And He's a person. That's true. So number one. Ahab is the king. He's called Achav Melech Shomron. He's the king. So you've got a commoner against the king. That's already the power equation is stacked up against him. But it calls him. What, how does it call Nabot? It gives him some descriptions. He, well, he owns something. He owns the vineyard, so he must own land also. He owns land, right? And he, firstly, he's a neighbor to the king's palace, yes. right? So it must be he's probably upper class, uh -huh. whatever. But he, he, what's his title? The Jezreelite, in other words, and, and not only is he the Jezreelite, but he lives in Jezreel, right? So in other words, this guy has grown up there, right? He is Nabot the Jezreelite, right? He is the, he is the man who's like entrenched, his father's been here, his grandfather's been here. He remembers playing in the creek, you know, when he was a little kid. You understand what I'm saying, right? He is part of the fabric, he is. And what, about, what about the king? Does the king live here? No. The king lives in Samaria, the capital city of Samaria, up in the mountains, right? By the way, if you know Israel, if you want to know where Jezreel is, it's not far from Afula of today, between Afula and Bet Sha'an in the, in the Jezreel Valley. It's an amazing, by the way, beautiful valley. It's a place of agriculture, very hot. Uh, but maybe you guys are used to that. <laughs> uh, but actually there, it's, it's, it's hot, and, hot and humid, uh, because there's a lot of springs there, uh, a lot of uh, natural water. So it's a very fertile area. Um, and, and so you've got Nabot the Jezreelite from Jezreel, expressing that he's the local. And he lives next to the king of 
King Ahab from Samaria. In other words, does the king really belong here? No. The king, go back to your palace in Samaria. By the way, the king had a winter palace. You know, like people move, you know, I don't know, they have a house in... Uh, in, in, yeah, exactly. He's, oh, he's a snowbird. He lives for the winter. He goes to Samaria, right? It's exactly. It hasn't changed. Okay? And, <coughs> and what's very interesting, that Ahab spoke to Nabot, verse 2, and said, Give me your vineyard as a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you, to, give, for, sorry, give you for it a better vineyard than it, or, if it seems good to you, I will give the worth of it in money. Okay? Does this seem like a fair proposition? To the king, it does. To the king. Okay. But it, I mean, I think it's fair. Yeah. He wants this field. He says, I want to expand my garden. Right? And I'm, I, you know, I've sort of got into horticulture lately. Um, you know, he saw Michelle Obama's you know, organic vegetable garden in the White House. And he said, he said, I'd like to do that. That seems like a great community project. Okay. And he says, OK, I need some land. Hey, Nabot, I'll go, I've got a great offer. I'll either pay you for it. Right? Or if you want, we'll do a land swap and I'll give you even better land. That seems pretty fair. So why does Navot uh, refuse him? What's his argument? Because he came from his father's father's father. Very good. Very good. In other words, what is he says? Navot says, first of all, it's very interesting, the Lord forbid it me. He sees this as, is this just his principles? No. It's a religious offense, right? Why? That I should give you the inheritance of my father's here. In other words, he's actually saying something which is on principle. Now here, I just want to pay attention to this interesting thing. I don't know, if you, you, I don't know if how many of us are aware that this is sort of like a principle, right, of Judaism, that you don't give away your land, right? I put it here on the, um, on the bottom of page two, uh, sort of parallel sources. Um, I want you to think about what uh, this might mean, right? I, I put it here. Where it says the king versus the people who has the power. It says the land shall not be served. So this is from Vayikra from the book of Leviticus. You see it at the bottom there? The land shall not be served in perpetuity for the land is mine, says God. Mm -hmm. And your sojourners and residents with me. So it's the idea that anybody in this, on this earth, you know, they're a visitor. And the land, I've given it to you. And throughout the land we possess, you should give redemption to the land. This is what he says... Um, uh, by the way, there he's talking about the idea that uh, people shouldn't gather huge landownings because, you know, people with real estate, sometimes they can eat up more and more and more. Once you get more capital, you can have more capital and more capital. And that's how it works. And it's very interesting what it says here in, in, in the next passage in Bamibar. An inheritance should not be transferred from one tribe to another for each person of the children of Israel shall cleave to the inheritance of the tribe of their fathers in order the children of Israel may inherit each individual the inheritance of their fathers. What are we saying about the culture of land in the land of Israel? What are we trying to say? What do you think this means? Keep it, okay. What else? Don't transfer it. So, but what would be the, the effect of this? In other words, you're probably aware that in the, in the Jubilee year, you know, even if you've done land property, the whole land is on a 50-year 50 50 year lease. And every 50 years, it goes back. Even if I have been a less successful farmer, I've had to sell, had to sell some of my fields, right? What happens? I then get the land back after 50 years. Because even when I sold it, I only sold it on a 50, 49 year lease. Um, what does that do to a society when, when you're going to get, your, you know, this land belongs to my ancestors and God sort of gave it to us? And Stable. 
Stable. Stagnant. What do you say? Stagnant. Why does it stagnate? What do you mean by that? Okay, so you could, you could say it in a negative sense, where from, a, from a, maybe a capitalist sense you might say it sort of stagnates because we want people to develop. Certainly today it's difficult to imagine all that land being on a 49-year lease, right? You know, yeah. what suddenly you'd find your house there gone. There might be somebody that knows how to use land better than And there might be. But on the other hand, we... Preventing them from getting land. That's true. If it's a vegetable garden, it's going to stay one. It's not going to become... A garage. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so and there might be negative sides to the economy, and it might weaken the economy from our perspective. But you know what? One of the problems in our society, I, I remember reading as a university student, I remember reading an article. I, I remember reading an article which scared me when I was a university student. I think it's still true. Um, about something called the underclass. They said there's upper class, middle class, lower class, and there's what they called an underclass. There are people who almost are never going to climb out of their poverty. Right? I, I, I'll tell you, my, my daughter is currently working in Israel in a, in a youth village. She's responsible for some kids who can't live at home because their houses are abusive or whatever it is, and she's doing part of her army national service. She's uh, uh, 18 years old, and she, everybody's obligated to do national service, and she's working as a sort of youth leader in one of these areas. So in her first few weeks there, she had to deal with a 16-year-old um, who got pregnant. She herself comes from a very poor family who didn't know how to sort of raise their kids. And uh, my daughter was talking to her, and there was the whole question, would she have an abortion or what? And the, the girl, she's allowed to decide. It's obviously her body. She decided to keep the baby, right? So she, now she's got a girl in the dorm who's pregnant and 16 years old. But we were talking about her home, and my daughter said, she said, she's come from such a hard environment of parents who haven't had any real opportunity in life. And now, what's going to happen to her? She's going to be a young, single mother, right? This means that this is going to continue till the next yeah, generation. Until they know. Right? Yes. Well, the, the question yeah. is, how can we allow people to get a second chance? How can we allow the next generation to get a chance? When the land, right, belongs to the people, and the land goes back each generation, right? Okay, your dad maybe didn't do so well, but maybe you've got a chance, right? You get the farm back. And I imagine maybe... You grew up thinking, my dad didn't make a success. I'm damn well going to do that, right? I'm going to... After the Jubilee year, where does the land, who does the land go back to? To the original family. Now, this also does something very interesting. Here you've got a commoner against the king. <laughs> and the commoner can actually turn down the king, right? It actually gives power to the people, right? We sometimes look at the ancient world and think, you know, the king, certainly it, England with their kings and the peasants, right? And you read, uh, I don't know, and you read the brutal stories. Uh, and, uh, you know, not only could they t t uh, take a, seize your land, but they could send you off to war to your death, uh, what, what have you. Um, and suddenly you have a situation where the common farmer can turn around to the king, look him in the face, and say, sorry, I can't give it to you. And the king, by the way, and this is the difference between Ahab and Jezebel, the king simply goes to bed and sulks because you know what? He also knows he's got no legal right to take it. Isn't that? I, I don't know. Just in terms of look, you're, I'm, I come from the UK. You guys are Americans, right? Right? You guys know about this idea of you know checks and balances of the power to the people as opposed to the uh, right. You probably know how to say all this stuff way better than I do, right? And uh, you know, it. I think it's a. I think. You know, where, where do these ideas come from? The idea that we shouldn't be able to give too much power to the sovereign, 
because he might take that power and abuse it, and that they take the power of the land and give it to the common people, and that somebody can stand up to the king and say, whoa, you know, this is my ancestral land, God gave it to my ancestors, and therefore I can't give it to you, and the king is absolutely powerless. What about Solomon and Bathsheba, when he takes the Hittites to get him killed so he can right. marry Bathsheba? Right, David, I think you mean, but uh, yeah, well, that story. So David falls in love well, with... Ba- yeah, David. David right. Solomon and Sheba. Yes, you got it. <laughs> You're correct. <laughs> yeah, so David, da- David and Bathsheba, and he kills, it, and he kills the husband. And he, I think but he's... But him on the front line. Yeah. Well, he sent yeah. him to war. And but, the, but he asked to go there. Well, the, also the thing. Can, can I serve you, my king? I want to go. I think that's one of the front lines. I think yes. that's one of his great okay. sins. I think that's one of his great sins. I mean, as I always say when we talk about it, the Bible doesn't tell us that story to tell us that David got away with it. The Bible tells, tells us that story to tell us that David suffered. They had a child together. The child died. David then had his own son rebel against him and depose him, right? Uh, with with the, and, and then David had, and he had a, he had he had Absalom. Right? And, the, and David ends, ends up with four children dying in his own lifetime, which is like horrific. Right? So I think David gets his comeuppance, you know. David suffers awfully for that particular story, right? What I'm saying here is that the Bible is very interested in the limits of power. And it's very interesting, even if you look at the top of page three, uh, this is in the Code of Maimonides, where Maimonides tries to put a, a legal code to what the king's rights are. And he says... The king can take, like he can seize, he can requisition, he can confiscate fields and orchards and vineyards for his subjects, but only when they go to war. In other words, if it's a national emergency, then he's got the right to do it and he can take, you know, he needs food for his, you know, they're up in the north and they don't have food, so he says, fine, I'm taking your, your, your vineyard, I'm taking your things. Only if they have nothing to eat, and he must recompense the owner of the field. But just because he wants a vegetable garden, a pleasure garden, well, that isn't very, very good. Right. Yes. You're from Britain. I'm from Canada. How does this compare to the Magna Carta as a Britisher? Do you see any comparison? I, again, I'm going to have to plead ignorance. Um, do you know? Do you know what it says there? Well, the Magna Carta, the the, um, the knights said to the king, you. You know, we have to be part of the program, right. and uh, we're not going to do whatever unless you give us some power. We're not going to fund you. So right. that was the beginning of British democracy. Right. Okay. You know, I, look, I, I'm delighted when I see uh, situations like this, right? Um, it is, it's always worrying as citizens in a country when sometimes you really do feel that the government has enormous power. And if you've ever been up against a sort of governmental organization, whether it's the IRS or whatever it might be, you sometimes really feel like absolutely a pawn against this huge, you know, organization. And you just, don't, you just you feel so powerless frequently. And the, the, this idea that, you know, in terms of land, uh, he can stand up to the king, I think is very powerful. If this seeps into other cultures, yeah. that's beautiful. <laughs> you know, I will simply say that this story predates the Magna Carta by a good couple of thousand years. So uh, that's, you know, this, uh, this story would be dated, what would it be, 800 BCE? Okay, so there's a pretty powerful statement to make. I'm not claiming that other cultures didn't have it, but you know, the fact that the Bible has become such an important document in Western civilization, I think shows that this is uh, something very special. So, yes, please. It says the land cannot be transferred out of your tribe. So if they were from the same tribe, 
Could the land have been transferred from Neva to Ahab? Um, right, so the idea, it's talking about the land being transferred to tribe, what would happen if a, actually that particular story is talking about what would happen if you had a woman who had a land holding because she had no brothers, right? So usually it went through the boys. But let's say a woman, there were a family with five girls, right? That's the story of Salachad's daughters in the Torah. And she held land. And now she married, she's from the tribe of Manasseh. And then she marries a guy from Zebulun, right? So what happens to the land? So the idea is the land still remains with the original family. In some way, it's got to go back to Zebulun. It's got to go back, uh, sorry, it's got to go back to uh, Manasseh. It's got to go back to the original tri tribe because... Otherwise, then the whole thing becomes a real patchwork quilt and uh, very complicated. Um, let's, let's continue with the story a little bit, okay? And I want to, let's, I want to focus a little bit on, on <coughs> some interesting psychology here. Um, because I think this story also, and not only does it deal with power, but it deals with the psychology of the way we sometimes manipulate things in our own mind. Um, let's try and, uh, we'll, we'll try and take a look at this. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Um, I called this section, I call it the psychology of denial. I'll explain what I mean. Um, it says... I'm looking at verse 4, I'm reading the original story. Ahab came to his house, Salon and Furus, because now what? The Jezreelite's response, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down in his bed and turned his face away, wouldn't he? And then Jezebel's, his wife came to him and said, Why are you Solomon? You won't eat. And he says, Because I spoke to Navot the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I won't give my vineyard. Now, first of all, it's very interesting. Um, I say this as a, uh, as a husband who has a wife where, you know, sometimes, um, I'll, I'll put it this way. <laughs> Jezebel comes in and says, why you won't eat? And he says, I spoke to Navot the Jezreelite and said, give me your vineyard for money. Give me your vineyard for money. Or else, if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he says, I won't give you my vineyard. Is that what he said to him? Right. Right. First, he says, I won't. And, but what else? Is that what he offered him? No, he said that he can't. He, because his no, but is that, what, is that what Ahab offered no, Nabot? He, no, he wants his wife to feel sorry and take over. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's like this. It's like, you know, how, how, um, you know, did, how when you, you, know, you take the car to be fixed, right? And, uh, you know, you bring it back and it's still... Did you tell them that it was this? And did you ask for a, a reduction? And you're like, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> All the things, I mean, I can go different. I'm just saying it because I'm a husband and I've got a wife, but it can go, I say the same thing to my wife, right? And we're all, we all sometimes will say it as if we were a little tougher than we were, right? Because we were very polite. One of the fascinating things is Ahab is a little intimidated by his wife, right? Uh, she's a bit of a toughie, as you can see from the story. And he actually said to him, Give your and he told him, I want it for a vegetable garden, right? And then he says, because it's near to my house. He's explaining why he wants it. And he says, I'll give you a better vineyard. And if you want, I'll give you money. And when he tells his wife, he says, I said, give your vineyard for money. And if it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. He doesn't say, 
She's like going to say, well, you told him you needed a vegetable garden. Why didn't you tell him that? What's he going to do with anything? Yeah, you didn't, you told him you give him a better vineyard. Just pay the guy and finished, right? He tries to, first of all, look very tough uh, to his wife. But the second amazing thing is how something happens in this story to Navot's refusal. And I want, we're going to take, if you can look at page three, I wrote here the transformation of Navot's refusal. I want to take a look how it changes. It's really a r- remarkable feature of the story. Um, Nabot said, God forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. Right? Um, Woe to God that I should give my... But then when Ahab was lying in bed, he said, um, Nabot said to me, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. What, did, what changed in Ahav's mind? He didn't say that God had anything exactly. to do with it. Navot said, it's a, it's a religious infraction, I can't do it, right? What did Ahav hear? He actually does, he says, what does Ahab turn it into? That he just won't. I won't, because it's an inheritance. In other words, right. it's nostalgic, it's a family heirloom, but he lo- missed out the godly bit. In other words, that didn't, fig- that didn't somehow make a mark in Ahab's mind. And I'll even say something more than that. If you look in the first sentence, where's the you? Where's the word you in the first, in, the, in Nabot's thing? Right at the end. It's not personal, right? The way Ab is it, I will not give you. <laughs> it becomes much more per- personal. Then in comes Jezebel and says, what are you so miserable for? So he says, I offered him money and that. And what did he say to me? I will not give you my vineyard. What's she taken out? What's he taken out to her? It's just personal, right? It's not to do with any sense of principle or any sense of family. It's only personal, right? That's where he, he gets him. And when Jezebel says it to him, she's killed him. She turns around and says, oh, you can take the vineyard because uh, Nabot is dead. She says, who refused to give the vineyard of Nabot, the Israeli, for money. In other words, what does she say? What's she claiming? The guy's just greedy. He was trying to pull a better deal. Now, look at what a transformation this happens. In, in, in the initial thing, Nabot, who's a good guy, says, listen, I've got a religious principle. I care about this. I want to be the best Jew I can. I don't give away my land. Ahab hears it, not as a religious principle, but as a sort of nostalgic, oh, well, you know, it belongs to my grandfather. He does, doesn't make him more. To Jezebel, he's already changed. You know, I don't know if you ever have this situation whereby when you're really angry about something, and in your own mind, things start changing, mm-hmm. right? And something which was somewhat innocent, somehow you're really annoyed with somebody, and you start thinking, oh my God, and he even did that. Think, our minds have a way of working things. as a psychology of, of sin, right? And suddenly what you really find is that he's sort of justifying the action. He's justified by the end of it. That downright greedy, you know, disrespectful, good for nothing, right? In the beginning he was so principled. And the same line is, it metamorphosizes, changes slowly, slowly, slowly through the story, right? Yeah, yeah like a broken telephone, exactly like that. One of the questions is, did Ahab's expression of, and his soliciting, did he know Taking that posture, it was to both to respond of his wife. Yeah. So he maybe manipulated her. Right. 
And did he not know that it's against the, the Jewish law right. to Jewish transfer Jewish. the property? Right. He should know that. Right, you should know that. Right? Well, this is it. So Jezebel says, you know, I, you go be a king, and apparently he doesn't do anything. She says, I'll get you the field. And then, that's, that's, this is where like, the story goes from like, ugly to grotesque. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, what does she do? She makes out as if there's a, 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 there's a fast. Why would you make a fast? Right? It's not clear. Maybe for rain, right? If they made a fast for rain or something like that, it says she called a fast... And it says, what did she say to do? By the way, she sends this. Obviously, I also says more than that. She wrote, in, I'm reading from verse 8. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent the letters until the elders to the nobles that were in the city and that dwelt with Nabot. And she said, proclaim a fast and set Nabot at the head of the people. Right? So first of all, people, now, it's really amazing. She's basically setting up a murder mm -hmm. and the people just go along with it. Yeah. And, and mm. he doesn't hear any of this going on. Right. He's still in bed watching, still in be bed watching the baseball, right? Um, the 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 it, what's amazing is they are all yes men. I don't know whether she, they're so scared of her, right? In another. I was only following orders. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I don't know. In earlier, in, in a different chapter, in an earlier chapter, we see that, uh, that Jezebel was actually killing all the prophets of God. Um, Ahab had actually well, relatively well disposed to God, but she had a regime, and she even threatened to kill Elijah. Right? She said, Elijah, if you stay in town, I'm going to have you murdered. Right? So she's a mean piece of work, this woman, and she she issues her orders, and they follow them to the letter. Maybe Which is remarkable. She can get away with it because she's not Jewish. Maybe I, I don't know, but you know, but it's very interesting. What does she do? She actually uses religion in order mm -hmm. to do this, because a fast is obviously a religious thing, mm -hmm. and she makes a fast, and that puts Nabot at the head of the people, which means he's the preacher or he's the chazan, right? Mm -hmm. He's the prayer leader, which means he was very respected, right? And then what do they say? Set two men, immoral fellows, benevolent, evil guys, and let them bear witness against him, saying, "You curse God and the king." And then carry it out. And this is exactly what they do. They follow it. And the men of the city, the elders, the nobles, dwelt in the city and did as Jezebel said. In other words, she's got all of, the, all of the governmental figures. They're all intimidated by her or she's given them promises of, I don't know, better jobs. Well, right? But Rabbi, wouldn't Ahab have known his wife's like that? I think he did. So he, wouldn't he know that if he sort of intimates I've got a problem with this guy, she might do something bad and he's going to find out what she's doing? I think he I think he was happy. He he's a kid, mm -hmm. right? He's acting like a child. Let's face it, and he he's uh, he and he he really wants it, but he doesn't know how to do it because he feels his hides, his hands are tied. But he I know somebody who'll get it done, right? I don't know, right? And you have to wonder too was then his behavior manipulative because he knew. What she would do. So it might well be if you've watched a few movies or you watched House of Cards or something like that, right? No, you know. I'm just married, I know. <laughs> 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 there's a Shakespeare play with the same plot where the king says, "Won't somebody get rid of this bishop for us?" Right. Yeah. So that story just again used right. Well, I'll tell you one thing, which is like one thing which I is a very sharp read 
which I once read in the writings of a professor, Yair Zakovich, and he actually said something very interesting. He says that eventually, what do they do? Um, verse 13, the two men, immoral fellows, came in and sat before him, and the immoral fellows bore witness against him, against Nabot. Uh, I just want to pay attention to the he Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it says they should be negdo, and they should, uh, they should testify towards him. But later on, when they actually come, um, it says they sat negdo, they sat towards him, but then they testified neged ha'am. They, they testified facing the people. Even these evil people who were set up as false witnesses could not look Nabot in the face when they were giving their testimony. The Hebrew is very precise, right? When a person lies, you've got to be... Uh, any ordinary person who hasn't destroyed their soul is not going to be able to basically testify falsely against a man, lie brutally in his face, right, to send a man to his death while they're looking in his eyes. They can't do it. And the Bible says, you know, nobody's that evil, right? Nobody can really... Go. And, and this is what happens. This is just a, a terrible, terrible story. And then what happens, right? Of course, she turns around, comes back to the palace and says, take possession of the vineyard of Navot, because Navot's alive, not dead. He doesn't say a word, and he gets up and does it. He rose up to go down to the, the vineyard of Navot, the Jezreelites, to take possession of it. And the word of God came to Elijah, saying, Are you arise, like he arose. <laughs> you arise, go down there. And saying, he says this great line, Have you killed and also taken possession? Right, I guess. Add insult to injury, but it's not an insult to injury. It's much worse than that. You know, it's not bad enough you killed the guy. But now you take his field? And I think about what this means. The guy said, this is the family heirloom that I know that even after I'm dead, it will go to my children. Well, that's what I was wondering about. Yeah. The inheritance part of it down the line. I mean, Why did it the, doesn't say that Nabot has... So here's something very interesting, which I think is in common law, that what did they accuse him of? And this is why they had to accuse him. Cursing, cursing God, but also cursing the king. Yeah. If you're involved in treason, the king takes your they property. Right? So because he was accused of treason, making a plot against the king or cursing the king, because of that, his field was, t was, was, uh, was taken from his family and went to the king. Uh, how, you know, and now the king's going to, you know, those, those, you know, if this was the story of Cain and Abel, which I actually talk about tonight, those, I don't know, those vegetables should be full of blood, right? <laughs> you know, that's what it feels it feel like. like. You know, this is just taken with the greatest guile. And it's even worse, the fact that he doesn't know. As you said, that he almost indicated to his wife, because the fact he doesn't know makes it even more pernicious. It makes it more grotesque. But, but Rabbi, in the end, this is terrible. I will not bring the evil in his days, but on his son's days. Right. How can that be? The sons are innocent. They didn't know anything. Why should they pay the price for right. what their parents did? You're, it's a good point. And... Um, yes. <laughs> I don't have a great answer. I don't have a great answer. I can only say that the Bible frequently says, you know, um, that God will visit the sins of the, so of the fathers on the children, right? And, um, and it's very interesting that this is not the only ethic in the Bible, because it's very interesting that this is the ethic which we get from the book of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and the book of Kings. Uh, later on in later times, it seems to be that Jews found this objectionable, just like you found it objectionable. And they said, if that's going to be the case, if we bear our parents' sins, then how do we have any hope? Right? And uh, in fact, there's a line in the Book of Lamentations after the destruction of the temple where they say, Our forefathers sinned and they are no more, but we're bearing their sins. Well, then we've really got no hope. And it's fascinating that the later prophetic books take on this theology 
And if you look in uh, the, the book of Ezekiel, for example, the book of Ezekiel turns around and says, you know what? Each person will only be responsible for their sin, not for anybody else's sin. And if a man sins, and he will pay the price. But if he doesn't, his son will not pay any price. So it seems like later on, people found this so objectionable, the prophet sort of restated. I don't know how, you, now you're going to tell me, yeah, but if it, it's God who makes decisions, not the prophet. I'm not sure what to say about that. But there does seem to be a discomfort with this sort of ethic that, uh, that you're expressing, but even the prophets are expressing. How can it be that it's just not a fair world? How can it be that somebody else's sin right, affects us? Right? But it so seems like that's what, if that's where the children live and grow up, that's what they learn. Like what your daughter saw. The 16-year-old became pregnant. That's what she saw, maybe, that people... It, it just goes on. It's, maybe it's not that they're having the punishment. It's, it's the way of life. Well, what you're saying is that, you know, it can well be that if... Um, you know, I always find it funny with elections, right? When it says that, you know, I don't know, the, the economy improved under President Obama. There was a fewer, fewer, there were, you know, lower, the employment lower. Was that because it was Obama's policy was better? Or was that because Bush's policy? In other words, yeah. it, it takes a while for economy to kick, do you know what I mean? Yeah? Or if there's a, a war, you might feel the effects of that later on, right? Like they talk about, you know, the economic boost in the, I don't know, 50s and 60s was a sort of outgrowth of the Second World War. You know, when they say it won't happen in your time, it'll happen in your son's time, is that just like a fact of life? <laughs> that sometimes there, if you've been running an evil regime, it doesn't stop the moment you leave office, right? It doesn't stop, right? The corruption's still in the system, right? And it's going to affect, you know, it, it takes a long time to... Uh, uh, national administration is a, is a big ship to turn around in water. You can't turn it around like a small little car, right? Okay, we're going to... How much more time do we have? We're sort of... What? Oh, we'd be on time. They told me oh, I could... They told me I could go till that one, and now I see people packing up. Okay. Okay, I'm not going to go on too much longer. Um, okay, fine. I will, I, will, I, will, I, will, I will sort of finish up. <laughs> well, I know there are different, but I'm not going to go on to, to, to <laughs> okay. We, we, there is, the, the end of the story is very difficult because he pronounces a punishment and then Ahab tries to repent. And um, he tries to repent and God says, you see how he repented, right? I'm going to listen to his repentance. The question is, you know, is, is that genuine, Right? How can somebody repent, right? You see, at the end of the story, it says they give him this terrible sentence. And verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he rent his clothes, put sackcloth on his flesh, fasted, lay in sackcloth, walked submissively. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, you see how Ahab humbles himself before me? Because he humbles himself before me. I won't bring the evil in his days. In his son's days, I'll bring the evil. I do think it's very interesting that there is this possibility of repentance. And, you know, we sometimes, when we see our leaders do awful things, it's very difficult yeah. to believe they've repented, right? One of the interesting questions that have been raised recently that I've heard, um, you know, again, maybe he shouldn't continue to be the king. Maybe he shouldn't be given in power. But if you do have somebody who has, I don't know, been inappropriate in terms of their financial dealings, right? I'm not sure I'd let him be the head of the corporation, or I'd make sure I put watchdogs in. Mm -hmm. But should the guy get a job <laughs> afterwards? Or is he going to be stained for life? Right? What happens if somebody who, I don't know, has been sexually inappropriate at work? Right? So now, what does that person, let's say he even went to jail, right? then what do you do? So again, you might say, okay, we're never going to let that guy, he molested, we're never going to let that guy 
um, work with children anymore, right? But can he, you know, is it, he's still going to earn money when he comes out of jail, right? Do we allow people to do, to repent? Um, now, again, you know, when we see something so, it's outrageous, right? You know, <laughs> um, it's a very good question about what we do with this. Um, God accepts the repentance. And actually it's Jonah who says, yeah, what the heck was that? You accepted such a little bit of repentance? Yeah, how can I accept that repentance? And we, The stories are so powerful in describing the sin. We sometimes, once we finish that, we just don't want to let him off the hook at all. Well, right? it carries forward uh, into a lot of society today where you've got these people that go up, hypothetically, they kill 10 people, and then they go to prison and they find God. Yeah. They find God and they, they want repentance and they want their sentences... Then commuted. Well, not commuted, maybe, but from death down to life. Right. So it carries forward. Right. And, and it's a very big question, you know, is there any forgiveness after all of this? Uh, I'm going to let that hang. In this story, he does get yeah. some forgiveness from God. God saw that he was genuine. I mean, I've got to tell you, when I read this story, I'm not so sure that he's yeah. so genuine, right? Because he seems like a quite a nasty piece of work, right? But God says, have you seen that he's repented? Um, all right, I want to deal with the, maybe look at just some of the, the, the sources on the last page, and this will be our last uh, thing that we look at. This is Maimonides, the laws of murder and life preservation. Obviously, these are laws of life preservation, not laws of how to murder, <laughs> how not to murder, how to treat murderers, right? And I just want you to see what he, what he talks about here. He says, first of all, it's very interesting because Ahab is one of the greatest idolaters of the Bible. He was like, and yet the Bible doesn't condemn, it condemns, but it, it's not his idolatry that makes the mark, it's actually this story. And he says this, although there are crimes that are more serious than bloodshed, well, so he wants to say like, uh, like doing idolatry because that's against God, right? It may be in a legal sense, right? They do not lead to destruction of society in the way that bloodshed does. Even idolatry, or needless to say, prohibited sexual relations or desecration of Shabbat, which are taken very seriously, are not like bloodshed in this respect, for these belong to transgressions between man and God, while bloodshed belongs to the category of sins between humans and one, one human and another. Anyone who commits such a sin is a thoroughly wicked individual. All the commandments performed throughout his life are not equal to the weight to this sin, nor will they save him from judgment. We learn this from the example of Ahab, who was an idolater, as it said of him, there was no one like Ahab who gave himself over to do evil in the eyes of God and acting most abominably in going after idols. But when his sins and merits were set out before him, there was no sin that made him deserve of being wiped out, nor any other matter that stood against him like the blood of Nabot. And by the way, I have to say, the very next chapter, Ahab is killed in war. Ahab is killed in war, um, and, uh, and, and this prediction does come true. So, in other words, it might well be there are lots of religious sins, but the Bible's saying, you know, sometimes we, we wonder about, you know, Jewish religion, and we say, why do people take certain ritual things so seriously, but they don't take ethical, societal things seriously? This is a great example where the Bible, Maimonides is pointing out and saying, the Bible, yeah, he was an idolater, that's bad, but what's worse is having a man killed. And then they bring another lesson, which is really important, the same Maimonides. He says, desire brings a person to coveting, and coveting leads to theft. For if the owner of the object that one desires is not willing to sell it, even though one offers a hefty sum and pleads with them, he'll come to steal it. As it's written, they coveted fields and stolen. And if the owner confronts him to save his property or to prevent him from stealing, he'll come to shed blood. Go study the story of Ahab and Navot. 
It's actually very interesting. In both cases, clearly Maimonides thought this was a very important story. And he yeah. says like this. He says there is a chain reaction in human psychology. The first stage, you know, one of the earliest things you have to teach children. I remember when I was very surprised when my son was about a year and a half. And he actually, first, first thing he used to do was he used to walk along the street and just open car doors. <laughs> he loved cars, right? He loved cars. And he liked walking over a car door. We had to teach him, like a young age, you can't do that. And he's like, I want to go in the car. I'm like, it's not our car, right? <laughs> yeah. Then what he'd do is we'd go to friends' houses and he'd come back and have a, like pockets full of cars, right? Do you remember that with your kids? And he'd take pockets full of them. We'd like, uh, have to work out which friend he took them from or, or even sometimes from the store, right? It takes a long time for somebody to realize you just can't take things, right? But it's something, it's amazing we actually have to teach our kids that. But once it says, one thing he says, there's a thing called desire. We can let our desires get, sometimes they say it's only desire. He says, be very careful because desire will make you put pressure, un inordinate pressure on other people. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, sometimes if you allow your desires to get the, the, the wrong of you, you might even come to steal. And if the person stands and won't let you steal, then you might end up in killing. He says, you've got to be very careful with even the beginning. The fundamental thing you have to learn is that's his and it's not yours. Don't even start fantasizing about it. Don't even say, okay, it's his field. He said no. No is no, right? No is no. In the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's you know, house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's donkey, right? Of course, by the way, it doesn't mean that you can't, if you like your neighbor's car, you can also go out and buy the same Toyota Prius. You know? <laughs> it's not a problem. You just can't have his Toyota, right? That's the point, right? But what I'm saying is, yeah, that the, the, the idea of the Bible's already saying, control your feelings, right? It's not enough just to control your actions. Because once you allow those feelings in, once you, like Ahab, let that feeling fester, our minds have very, very sophisticated mechanisms to justify all sorts of actions, to claim, ah, I didn't see that. Yeah, I don't know that's happening on my watch, right? Um, and by the way, this is all true about all sorts, of, all sorts of things that go on. You know, sometimes we know the police are engaged in things, we say, okay, as long as I'm safe, right? All sorts of ethical things, and we have to be, the Bible's asking for a very high ethical bar, right? That we shouldn't entertain a sort of desire. Be careful, says Maimonides, desire leads to theft, theft leads to murder, and you know what? It happens quicker than you think, right? And, um, and therefore it's asking for us to be very, very careful about these things. So this is an amazing case study, right? Think about what we've seen today. First of all, we've seen about this idea, as I said, we started off the perfect murder. Even though you didn't see, you're still culpable. If you're the top of the totem pole, you're still uh, culpable. We've seen the way that the power that the, Israel, that the Jewish Bible gives to the civilian, the citizen, the common farmer against even the power of the, of the king, right? We've seen the way that Ahab's psychology, right, sort of shifts things, and a refusal, which is a principled refusal, becomes, an, in his own mind, an act of greed. <laughs> Um, and we've seen the way that people can manipulate religion and power in order to engage in really, really ugly things. Um, Maimonides warns us that this is worse than any other religious act. Right? There are acts between God and man, and they, they can be severe. That's between man and man. Oh, humans and humans, I should say it in a gender-neutral way. Uh, acts between humans and humans can be, uh, you know, really, the reason why they are so severe is because they destroy society. Society relies on trust and goodwill. And the Bible is written. And I, I look at this chapter. It's an, first, it's a riveting story, a story that kids can get into, whatever it is. But it's so powerful because it's really going to the heart of the, 
corruption within our society and the way that sometimes leaders are able to sort of simply whitewash things, whitewash things to get away with murder, right? Um, and sometimes you really feel that way. I remember when we, the, I don't know if you've seen the, what's it called, The Big Short? Did you see that movie? Yes. And I remember after the economic collapse, and I remember saying to myself, well, I don't understand. The financial institution have been so responsible. What's going to happen to those bosses? And the answer is, they're going to get hired by another Wall Street firm and get a big bonus next year. But other people have lost their money, right? And like sometimes when you feel this isn't their government, but in their business, how can it be? How can it be? And, and, and the Bible's talking about these things and it's trying to uh, heighten our ethical sensitivity. So please God, we should never experience corruption, but please God, that we, uh, uh, the Bible's telling us that we're all susceptible, right? We're all susceptible in small little ways. Um, and uh, we should all always be on our guard. We should always be on our guard to be ethically responsible, to be financially responsible. Um, no, I don't think anyone is suspected of going this far, but uh, it's little things, it's little things. And we all have these temptations and the Bible's asking us and, and warning us, this is human psychology, be aware of it, own it, and be careful that you don't fall into these traps. So we have to make it a requirement of all politicians and CEOs that they must <laughs> read the Bible. It wouldn't be a bad thing. wouldn't be a bad thing. Thank you. I'm happy to take questions after, as I know people have to go. Really, I want to say thank you. It's thank been fun you. learning with you. It's been great. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.